Warning, this episode contains spoilers and strong language. If it's something that's really well done the first time, it's not broken, stop trying to smash it. I'm always intrigued to see what it is that people are going to do with something that's already been done before. I hate remakes. I love remakes. Welcome everybody to our very first episode of I Hate Slash Love Remakes. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing the 1960 film Psycho and its 1998 remake of the same name. Joining me, as always, is Evie. I have a big cup of coffee. Also joining us is a very special guest. She's the co-host of the Made of Fail podcast, our parent podcast. Everybody, please welcome Dana. <laughs> Your parent podcast? Yes. As long as I didn't have to, like, shoot you out of my vagina, I think I'm good with that. I wouldn't have objected to that. Okay, I'm leaving. You're uh, never getting me back. Good night. You already broke her. Yes. Ten seconds in. <laughs> you broke well her. Well done, Noel. I know Evie desperately wanted to be the first one to do that. You know what? As long as I'm here, that's all I need. <laughs> yeah, well, anyways, Dana, we almost didn't have you because you had some computer problems. I had a complete and utter hardware failure of my hard drive, and I'm really pissed off about it because I lost all my porn. <laughs> Every fucking gig of it. Wow. I, I don't know how family-friendly you wanted to make this podcast, but it's just down the drain now. Well, we kind of figured out when we were going to have you on. Yeah. I, I like how I'm like, you know, the NC-17. and uh... <laughs> <laughs> You're the explicit part of the podcast. Oh, I'm explicit, baby. Now, you are known for being very passionate in your views when it comes to remakes. Oh, yeah. Go ahead and tell us about what are your feelings about remakes in general. Here's the thing. I feel that cinema is a work of art, and once it's done, it's done. I don't like it when it's constantly tampered with, George Lucas. I don't like it when people take something that's been done, and like, I just don't see the point in redoing it or reinterpreting it, because it's almost disrespectful in a way. I don't like the idea of, of remakes, because it's like, well, the guy who came up with it, yeah, I guess that was good, but I can totally do it better. And that just, it just smacks of egotism to me. And that is so not Hollywood. Well, yeah, I know, right? It's just, it's disrespectful, it's egotistical, it just doesn't make any sense to me. It's like, how many times can you paint the Mona Lisa? I'm not comparing cinema to fine art, but in some cases it can be. I mean, I remember there was a rumor going around they were going to remake It's a Wonderful Life, and I just shit myself. I was like, there's no way. Some movies, especially the older ones, they were specific to their time, and especially Psycho. The attitudes in that movie were very specific to the early 60s. And that's definitely something we'll be getting into. Yeah. I don't understand the point of updating for a modern audience, because it's kind of insulting to the audience. It's like, you're too stupid to go off and understand, like, the subtleties of what... You're never going to get anybody to appreciate older movies. They're all like, oh yeah, well this will drum up interest in the older movies. No, it won't. It'll just make people, like, think, oh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Well, that sucked. And it's like, no... <laughs> Well, okay, the sequels, but that's beside the point. <laughs> you know, but it's just somebody created something and to just redo it because you don't think people are going to get it or you want to make it hip and edgy and modern. It's so just, I, I don't understand that mindset. I don't. I never will. And so I pretty much oppose all remakes flat out. In the I hate love remakes, I am on the side of screaming in Eldritch about them. What if we're talking about remakes that are done or spearheaded by the people who made the originals? 
still, I think a movie should stand on its own two legs once it's done. Once you, when you've got a piece of art and it's done, I think it's done. You don't keep tinkering it with it once it's done. Like going back to George Lucas and his constant fucking with Star Wars. There's no point to that. Oh, I always wanted it to be like this. Well, yeah, but a lot of the charm of it is you worked with what you had and you made something great and outstanding and multi-generationally appreciated. You don't need to sort of touch it up. You don't. What if even if it's just basically taking a concept, but you come up with an entirely new spin on it, an entirely new way to explore it? Well, isn't that just a revision? That's just another draft of something. If you thought you could do it... Everybody improves upon their own art as they keep practicing that art, but you just go ahead and make new things, like new novels, new stories to tell. You do something new. You don't go back and say, like, oh, I could have done this better, so I will. You let it stand for all its warts. I mean, like I said, going back to the original Nightmare, it wasn't perfect. It has its rough edges, but it was, you know, that's part of its charm. That's That's part of it. Okay, well, we should probably get into the main discussion then, and... First, let's discuss the original 1960 version of Psycho. And Evie, did you want to tell us a bit about that film? Okay. Released in the summer of 1960, Psycho is directed by Alfred Hitchcock, written by Joseph Stefano, and adapted from the novel by Robert Block. The story begins with Marion Crane, a secretary in a real estate office, who runs off with $40,000 of a client's money. She's hoping this will pay off her boyfriend's debt so they can be together, but caught in a rainstorm, she drives off the main highway and, and finds herself at a nearly desolate motel run by Norman Bates and his overbearing mother. Marion soon winds up dead by mother's hand, and Norman covers up the crime, only for a detective to show up searching for the girl, followed soon after by Marion's boyfriend and sister. More blood is spilled by Mother, but in the end, Norman is arrested and it's revealed he was Mother the entire time, the result of a psychological break following her death. Hitchcock was coming off a decade of lavishly produced hits, the most recent being North by Northwest, but since the studio was an easy with psychosexuality and violence, he produced it fast and on the cheap, with a crew largely taken from his television series, Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Early critics were mixed, jumping on the low budget and taking offense at the film's content. But that didn't stop audiences from making it the highest grossing film of Hitchcock's career. It received four Academy Award nominations that year for set decoration, cinematography, supporting actress Janet Lee, and director Hitchcock himself. Dana, why don't you start off? What is it do you think makes this film such a classic? Because it's just such a relatable situation. Marion is a very relatable character. She is just stuck in this dead-end town. She just wants to marry her boyfriend, who's in, like, a shit ton of debt and wants to do, you know, everything respectably, although they're kind of having liaisons in hotels, right? She's just so very ordinary, and something comes along, and she sees a chance to improve her life, and she makes a horrible, horrible decision. You know, she steals the 40 grand. And she's like, I'm going to run off. And if you read the book by Robert Block, it really gets more into her character, where she's named Mary, not Marion, by the way. They changed that in the script for the movie. Oh, yeah, I read the book in prep for this. Oh, I love the book. I really do. But she was just, everybody's made a really stupid decision at least once in their lives. Uh, probably way more than once. It's just such a human thing to do. And she finds herself like, what do I do? If I go back, I'm probably going to get arrested. I can't live like, you know. She has all these feelings swirling around inside her, and you can really read that on, on Janet Lee's face and the way she reads some of the lines, especially in the scene where she's having sandwiches in the parlor with Norman. He was all like, I was born into my trap, and she's like, well, I sort of stepped into my own. Seeing Norman in such a horrible 
situation that he'll never get out of, it propels her to do the right thing and decide, okay, I'm going to go back. I'm going to face what I've done. You know, she eventually makes the right choice in the end and unfortunately gets murdered. But, you know, she pays for it. She does pay for it. She just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, and a horrible thing happened to her, and could have called that karma, but she's just such a human, and I think she's incredibly relatable, and you just end up completely empathizing with her in a way that a lot of horror movies don't do with their characters nowadays. Plus, it's just brilliantly direct. Uh, the cinematography is just unfucking believably awesome. You got the whole famous shower scene, which was done in, like, how many shots was that? It was like I thought it was like forty something cuts. God, and it's absolutely fabulous. You see these little like because they're such quick cuts. I mean, that's perfect because that's what Norman's doing, making lots of cuts. It's it's just genius. Although I am a little pissed off that you never see any stab wounds on her, but you know they quote unquote fix that in the remake. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. <sighs> I, I, I'm not going to think about the remake. I'll start swearing in, in like, Abyssal or something like that. Which is something we're very much looking forward to. <laughs> the story is such an everyday story. It's such a... Bad things happen to people all the time, and there's really no rhyme or reason to it. It's just... It's a sad story, if you think about it. You can pity almost everybody in it. It's a tragedy for everyone involved. It is. It's, it, it's totally a tragedy. It's almost Shakespearean. And it's just all these ordinary people in just horrible circumstances... Norman just slipped a cog and, you know, went crazy because of the shit that he went through. And, and he was he's the product of a fucked up family, you know, if you think about it, where he was raised with his mother to be, like, completely codependent on her. I know people like that. Just went a little too far. And, and I think Psycho, its basic theme is just, like, what happens when people are just... What does it take for somebody to snap? Mm-hmm. How long can you deal with the same thing over and over again until it finally breaks you? Yeah. And that's why it's so pitiable. It really is a story with no happy ending. Yeah. All right, Evie, anything you want to add? My favorite thing about the original was Hitchcock kind of pulls a switch on you as the story's going along. Because it's like your character is Marion and you're going along on the story with her. And then all of a sudden she gets in the shower and she's dead. And you're just like, well, this is awkward. <laughs> she's dead now. What do we do? And you're, like, left with Norman. And you, you're sort of going along on this whole... The latter part of the movie is just, like, him completely coming apart at the seams. Mm -hmm. And it, it's, it's a really interesting thing to do because you're sort of asked to empathize with the bad guy. Which, it's not that the movie starts out that way, but it's where it ends up. And then there's even a further switch in view when then we suddenly cut to the boyfriend and sister. So it just, it never lets you settle into whose story this is. Exactly. I like what you said about how it's just progressively Norman, like, falling apart, like, more and more and more. Like, the murder of Marion was like, he's done this before, it's implied. Well, that was an implication they kind of added at the end. I didn't quite like that. No, because you don't really feel like this was his first time doing this. I mean, like, the methodical way he cleaned up after Mother, it was just like, he's totally done this before. This is not his first time, you know, at the rodeo. But watching him sort of unravel as everything just sort of, like, his, I don't want to say sanity... But to him, he's saying he's perfectly saying to him, and that's being shattered. Like the fact he's going to have to confront, you know, mother's dead, and this was a theme that was carried into the sequels, both in the book and the movie. That was Norman's rehabilitation and trying to get him to really understand: you killed your mother, and you have to come to grips with this, and to try to rid him of his split personality. 
which I think was really cool. Just I, I love just psychological studies of people just to see what makes them. Yeah, I mean, what I really liked was it is very psychological, and it's about the choices that people make and the consequences that go. follow. Marion chooses to take the money. Norman chooses to cover up the crime. Arbogast chooses to go back into the house. Lila chooses to sneak into the house. It's also about lies. Where well, it's also lying to yourself, too, is what a lot of people are doing. Uh, Marion was lying to herself. Right, it's about trying to convince oneself of that your lies are true. The reality that you make around yourself and excuses for what you're doing. You know, Norman excused what he was doing by sort of bringing Mother back to life. Like, I didn't kill her. She's alive. I didn't do it. You know. And I love how the lies are given voice. Marion gives voice to the lies through internal monologues, and Norman gives voice to the lies through Mother. Well, you never really hear her internal monologue. You hear, like, what... Well, you, you hear the voices in her head that she's imagining. Yes, while she's driving in the rain, but you don't hear what she thinks about it. You hear what she thinks other people are going to think of her. Right. That whole thing, like, oh, I did see her, you know, on the street. Hmm, better call the cops. She knows as she's driving, she's going to get caught. She has to do something. She has fucked up. And you can feel her terror. Right. And I also just, as you said, this is a meticulously made film. It is just perfectly shot. It is perfectly edited. There's just so many great little moments. Like, I don't know if you noticed, but when Norman is cleaning up the crime scene, he never checks the drawers. And then when Lila and Sam go into the room, the first thing they check are the drawers. So it's like this little psych out for the audience of, oh, are they going to find something that he missed? It's meticulously made. I love when he's in the parlor and you can see all these birds of prey and they're always like perched, like they're ready to strike. Like you've got like, the shot. And they're staring right, right at, at Marion. Yeah. And you can see like he's sort of like posed in the lower right hand corner and surrounding him are these talons reaching out. And they're curved not only towards us, the audience, and Marion, but you can also see like from the side, they're also curving towards Norman. So it means that the hooks are in everybody. They're in the audience, they're in Norman, they're in Marion everybody's caught in like the claws in the clutches of something that's preying on them. But yeah, also what I like is just how brazenly sexual it is for a film of its time. I mean, it opens with a nooner. <laughs> it opens with an afternoon hookup while she's on her lunch hour, you know? How's that go? Afternoon delight? No. Right. I mean, you know, how many films were just open in a sweaty hotel room post-coital as she has to, you know, head back to work and he has to leave? Even the fact that this film has the very first time they ever showed a flushing toilet on camera in an American movie. Oh, and we've seen so many flushing toilets since then. God bless you, Hitchcock. Yes. <laughs> but, Actually, um, one of the things I had heard, too, about the shower scene, when he took it to the ratings board, they had told him that, oh, there was a nipple flash. And he was just like... No, there wasn't. <laughs> well, that's the thing. It's like he didn't even bother recutting it. He was like, oh, okay, I'll take it out. Yeah, he and he sent it back and didn't change a thing. Yeah, he didn't. He sent it back, figuring they're not going to watch it. They didn't. They passed it. And what's amazing is watching it on Blu-ray. There actually are a couple of nipple flashes. <laughs> oh, she had a body double. Yeah, I know it was the body double, but still, nice mm -hmm. body double. Yeah. <laughs> so, Evie, anything else you want to add about what you like? Anthony Perkins. Yes. When you first meet him, I'm like, oh, sweetie, I want to give you a hug and a cookie and just, like, pat your hair. Like, and by the end, I'm like, please stay away from me. I swear to God, I have a taser and I will use it. And he reminds he, me of me because he's got, like, he looks so charming and everything, but it's like he's the most nervous little, like, he, he's like a gerbil. Yeah. Like, even when he's first talking to Marion and, you know, he, the line that completely kills me because you can tell he kind of doesn't know how to talk to her is when he's just like, oh, you eat like a bird. And then he says, eats like a bird is actually a fault. Fall. And then he keeps kind of, you know, he stutters over the line. Yeah. He stutters over plenty of words, yeah. yeah. But do you and notice? Like, and, do you, oh, I just noticed something. 
He stumbles over the word fallacy because it's got phallus in it. And he's got that whole, like, psychosexual, like, training from his mother to think that sex is horrible and wrong and evil and bad. Ooh. Well, the word, I think, is, is either a falsity or a falsehood, not fallacy. No, fallacy is what he was looking for. Okay. That was definitely it. He trips over the word to bathroom, too. You know, it's anything sexual. Yeah. Yeah, anything with any kind of nudity or... Yeah, yeah, he really does that, doesn't he? I want to know if that was in the direction or if that was Anthony Perkins' choice. According to the DVD, Perkins actually brought a lot of this stuff, like the stuttering, the eating of the candy, a lot of his mannerisms, he brought that to Hitchcock himself, which was surprising because Hitchcock is usually a director who, he wants the actors to do exactly what he wants them to do, but he really liked a lot of the stuff that Perkins was bringing, so he let him do it. Well, plus Perkins was a really good choice in order to do that because he was a gay actor, and for the time, that was a really bad thing to be back in Hollywood in the, you know, in the 60s. To the perception of the time, there was just something kind of off about his sexuality and the way he carried himself. Well, he, he was used to, you know, hiding things and, and having to be nervous about how he acts around women. and that mm -hmm. He was a very handsome man. He looked like such a, a boy next door, yeah. but he always comes across as a boy. He always acts like he doesn't quite know what he's doing, and that's because of his mother's influence when he was growing up, and I think that really came through. And what I love is there is that sense of innocence to him. Even in the beginning when he's peeping through the peephole, there's still this kind of sense of a boy looking through a hole in a fence looking at the forbidden curiosity. And even when he's cleaning up the crime scene, it's this sense of innocence because he's trying to protect his mother. I honestly think the turning point with Norman, when you stop rooting for him, is after Arbogast's death, when you have that shot of him standing at the swamp, and he just turns to look, and it's just that shaded look on his face. It's the innocence has been lost. And it's also, you know, this is Hitchcock playing with his structure of, you know, the first person that mother, with air quotes, kills is a new defenseless woman in a shower. The second person she kills is a very capable street private eye. So, you know, with that added to this look that Norman gives, that suddenly he's no longer innocent, suddenly all the rules are out. You don't know who's going to be a victim. You don't know what's going to happen in, in the third act. And so you feel just terrified that this boyfriend and this sister are deciding to go and pursue this on their own. You have that great scene where the cop says, yeah, I went out and I checked the hotel, I checked the house, there was nothing there. Norman now knows exactly what he's doing. Mm -hmm. And how, how are they possibly going to be able to stop him? Well, he knows what Mother's doing. He knows what Mother's doing is wrong and bad. But this is the first time he's finally getting the ideas of wrong and bad in his head. And his personalities are starting to seep through to each other. This is where he's starting to get the thrill in being a part of it. I never got the impression he was thrilled about it. I knew that he was all like, I will do anything for Mother. I want to say he's becoming more comfortable with it, especially, you know, following the death of Arbogast. I kept seeing him like his and the Mother personalities kind of seeping through to each other right. a little bit more. There was less division. Yeah, well, it's, it's he, more... starts, he starts actually standing up to Mother when he carried her down to the fruit cellar. He's starting to take more responsibility. That's the first time you see him take responsibility the cleaning up of the blood after the shower scene is sort of like a rote thing. He's done this before. This is just what he has to do, but he's never actually defied mother. I don't. I get the sense from those that he's making it up in his head what he needs to do to get this scene cleaned up. I don't have the sense that he did it before. It seemed very mechanical to me. Yeah. Well, yeah, but he's a person who cleans rooms on a daily basis. So he's, This is true. I'll give you that. <laughs> he's evaluating, what in this room do I need to clean up? Yeah, he only has like the one moment of revulsion, and then it's just like, oh... Got to get this out of the carpet. There goes my deposit. You know, it's just, like, it's just, there's so many things that just play across his face. And can we segue into the remake now? We'll get there in a second. There's one thing I want to ask further, though, is, is there anything about the original that you don't like? The script. I'm sorry. It's, it's kind of really cheesy. It's not that strong. It's, 
kind of flat lines and everything really that's brilliant about the film comes out of the acting. Even though a lot of that dialogue comes straight out of the book? Even though a lot of the dialogue does come straight out of the book, I think the book also had its weak points. I didn't think it was the most brilliant script I've ever seen. I thought it was a great idea. I thought it was executed nicely. It's all... What the remake did was point out how weak the script was because you've got different actors doing the exact same lines... And it's just so much more powerful in the original. You know, like, the way that Janet Lee, you know, in the very beginning when they're ha- when she's having the tryst with Sam in the hotel, and he's like, as soon as I send off the last payment to my ex-wife, I'll let you lick the stamps. And she's all like, I'll lick the stamps. And she's all, like, you know, all sultry about it. And you got Anne Heche, like, being all sassy about it, like, I'll lick the stamps. That's just such a dumb line. There's no passion to it at all. Yeah, that's definitely something I want to bring up. But, Evie, is there anything you don't like about the original? There's one thing that really kind of bugs me every time is at the end, still a little thing, but the transvestite thing. That gets me every time because I'm like, for the time, that was accurate of transvestites, but I'm like, now we know better. And I'm like, every time I hear the transvestite line, I'm like, that's not right. And they didn't change the dialogue for the remake. And actually, they did. They took out it. They cut out quite a bit of that entire sequence. I haven't seen that for like fucking ever. Well, no, what I like, though, about the original is that the psychiatrist does take a moment to point out that, no, that's not exactly what's going on here. He's not a transvestite. It's more of a multiple personality disorder. Yeah. But the thing is, it's still supposed to be like the transvestitism is still supposed to be about some kind of sexual satisfaction or release. That's just like wearing women's clothes. You got to let that go back then. Yeah. Ed Wood probably would have disagreed with it. Ed Wood's like, they're just pretty. Mm -hmm. Exactly. My big problem with the original is Marion carries her story beautifully. Norman carries his part of the story beautifully. Arbogast carries his part of the story beautifully. Then you get to Sam and Lila, and they're just bland. A little bit, yeah. All right, I'll say this about the remake. I thought that Viggo Mortensen and Julianne Moore were really, really, really great as Sam and Lila. I think those are the only two actors I think kind of improved on the original. You were saying, though, about Sam and Lila in the original and being kind of weaker characters. I'm almost wondering if that was Hitchcock's intention to keep the focus more so on Norman. Yeah, I mean, I get the sense that Hitchcock wasn't as interested in them as he was in the other characters. I just find them forgettable. There's not really a whole lot of complexity or quirk to them. Sam was pretty disposable. I think there should have been a stronger character in Lila because she carried the second half of the movie. On the DVD, they talked about how there was an entire scene that they cut from the script before they filmed, where it was Sam and Lila kind of coming to terms with the possibility that Marion is dead. And it was supposed to be this big conversation between the two of them. And I almost wonder if that would have maybe helped cement them a little more as characters. But we never really got a chance to see it because he never filmed it. It would have probably presented a pacing issue. Yeah. All right. We'll go ahead and move on to the remake. So let's speak of the abomination. (laughs) Following the 1996 release of Wes Craven's Scream, studios took a new interest in the slasher genre, and Universal tapped acclaimed indie filmmaker Gus Van Sant to direct the remake of Psycho. Changing only a few lines of Joseph Stefano's earlier screenplay, Van Sant took a unique approach to the material, opting to follow Hitchcock's original to the point where many scenes are identically shot and edited. Universal was initially wary of this approach, but relented when Van Sant's previous film, Goodwill Hunting, became an unexpected smash success with both ticket buyers and Oscar voters. The Psycho remake was released in December of 1998, and Van Sant's faithful approach is what critics immediately leapt on as they labeled the film an unnecessary and unwanted experiment in imitation. Audiences agreed, and the film only made back half its budget. So do you guys think it was a completely unnecessary and unwanted film? Good God, yes, but I'm going to let Evie go first, just because I'll be here for an hour. (laughs) 
Okay. Go ahead, Evie. I want to say, like, yes, so hard, but um, there's so many elements that I do like. And the thing is, it's a really... It was something that was really close to Gus Van Zandt's heart. And so it's just like, everyone gets one. Even if it's sacrilege, everyone gets one. Because it's a really interesting way of looking at it. Like, it's sort of his, just like the people that he cast in it. It's an interesting... It's an interesting variation. Yeah. You have Norman and Marion. Those were the stronger characters in Hitchcock classic, whereas you kind of have Sam and Lila. And they're the stronger characters in the remake. So it's a bit more interesting there, but the thing is when you don't connect in the beginning. I can almost watch the first half of the original and then the second half of the remake. Well, here's one thing I want to ask. Why does everybody dislike Anne Heche's Marion? Because I didn't see a difference in her interpretation of the character. It's just, it's being funneled through Anne Heche. Oh, God. Um... Is it just that Anne Heche is not as approachable and relatable? Well, the thing is, Janet Lee had this kind of... She almost has this innocence about her. Like, you know, I was thinking vulnerability. Yeah, there we go. That's what I was thinking, too. But apparently I said innocence because I don't know what words mean anymore. (laughs) And she seems more conflicted about what she's doing. Even when she's packing up her suitcase and everything, she's walking all around her, her little room. Her pacing is all around that envelope of money. And she seems so conflicted about it, even there. Whereas Anne Heche, I'm like, she may as well be freaking, like, dancing the can-can. She seems so pleased with herself. Did you see her smirking during that whole scene where she's like, where do I hide the money? La, 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 la. She's like, okay, I'm just going to do this and get it over, whatever. Well, that's because she she learned that she was only 12 miles away from her destination, so she's kind of celebrating before kind of getting that wake-up call from Norman. No, no, no. The wake-up call from Norman was before the scene where she's in the hotel room trying to figure out what to do with the money. No, no, because it was, it was while he was going to get the food. She had the envelope of money and was looking where to put it. After she leaves to go back to her room, it's all on Norman and watching her change out of her clothes. See, that's why the pacing of a film, you have to have certain scenes, like, they'll completely change the meaning of a film or of a character's motivation, depending on where they are in the movie. If Marion started freaking out about the money after her talk with Norman, that shows regret. If it's beforehand, then it's like, yay, I'm going to get away with this shit. No, and that's what it is. She she was looking in the drawers. Where do I put the money? It was She was trying to figure out what to do with the money as she was celebrating, because she had just learned from Norman. She's only 12 miles away from Sam's place. Yeah, but when Hitchcock made the decision to put that scene after it gave us a sense of like marion is going to do right she's going to turn herself in and you don't get that feeling right but then why would she be hiding the money when she's going to turn herself in just in case maybe you know norman comes in or something like i don't fucking know you know that that's a good question i don't know we don't know her motivations right you know but in general i don't find her i mean she has the guilt as she's driving she gets the same voices she has the same guilty look she has the same doubts the same fears well then i suppose the question is is, is it Marian is it just because it's anne Heche? well the thing is with anne Heche, janet lee is just so much more subtle with her performance whereas anne Heche seems to wear it on her sleeve Every emotion, it's not like a little subtlety. Like uh, the line um, when she's, you're hearing the voiceovers in the car and that whole like even watched me count it out. And Marion gets, and Janet Lee gets this little hint of a smile. Well, Janet Lee gets this weird kind of almost manic grin that's kind of almost like the one that Norman ended on. Well, But I'll almost take that over like this big freaking smile where she looks like the cat that ate the canary. And I was like, what in the hell? 
Like, Anne Heche came across as a lot more... Um, She's not as innocent? Not only not as innocent, but just a lot more, like... Conniving? Thank you. A little bit more conniving and, like... She didn't more... feel like someone who was going through this for the first time spur of the moment? Yeah, it felt like, you know, Anne Heche's acting was so much more deliberate. Like, you really feel like Janet Lee is just sort of in this whirling... Like, the whole time, she's trying to figure out what the fuck is she doing, and you've got Anne Heche has a much clearer plan. You don't really get the sense of regret. Yeah. I think a lot of it is the fact that they filmed it in color, which I think was a mistake, because the black and white kind of puts everybody on an even level, right? Yeah. But when you get color into it, it's like half the stuff that Anne Heche was wearing is like this loud, garish... The wall. oranges and the greens and the pinks, yeah. The oranges. It's yeah. So loud it's almost and... like, along with her performance, it's calling attention to itself. Thank you. That's kind of where I was going and couldn't think of the words for it, because I can't English today. <laughs> it's like she's putting a big spotlight on, look at my performance? Kind of, yeah. I, I, I think it's just... Or look at me, I'm emoting. Look at me, I'm guilty. Look at me, I'm sad. Yeah. Instead of yeah. just being it. I hate it when people say how they feel. That makes me feel angry. <laughs> I don't entirely have as much of a problem with her performance because I almost felt she felt a little more authentic. No. That's just me, so. Well, that's because you're wrong, Noel. It's because yeah. you're wrong. Two to one, dude. I'm the supporter of remakes. I already take that for granted that I'm wrong. You yeah. know what I think it is, actually, with the two Marians, is the very first scene that we see with the original when you have Marion and Sam talking, it's very desperate. Like, they really kind of want to be together. Oh, they just the, need to be together. Like, yeah, when, like it, it, before when she's like, right. I'll lick the stamps. But forces are keeping them apart. Yeah. Like, the yeah. way that she says, I'll lick the stamps, yeah. it's so desperate just to be with him. Like, you actually believe that she would... And then they fall into each other's arms. And then when exactly. They... I'm like, you believe that she would lick the stamps. Whereas in the remake, it literally feels like they're just fucking around. It's just a big joke to them. They don't even mean it. It feels a little more shrewish where she's like i'm just kind of tired of you because you won't commit to me and he's like well you know i got this other stuff going on baby Yeah, move you on know? baby yeah and here's the problem with that when you quote unquote update they did update that shot a little bit that crane shot into the hotel room well they went back to do the shot that hitchcock originally wanted to do but he wasn't technically able to get it done yeah they got the technicalities of the shot right but i'm saying like what they shot you got sam and marion in bed she's still got her bra on and, and that was kind of racy for its time so they updated it to what's racy for 1998, and you got, like, partial nudity and, you know, side boob and stuff like that. But they didn't update dialogue. If Sam and Marion in 1998 are having, like, this torrid romance, and they deliver their lines so offhandedly, the reason that it sounded desperate back in the 1960 movie was because there was a huge social stigma on unmarried people fucking like that. And it's like, you know, we can't be together because of not only your financial situation, but, you know, nowadays, it, well, even back in 1998, it was like, what's the problem? You know, get an apartment or something like that. Right. Where now they want the respectability of, you know, in front of my sister's picture, you know. And, and that rang so false in the remake because that's completely untrue of the attitude of the time. Things were so much more liberal in 1998 and extremely conservative in 1960. And there's you just can't update the shot and not update the dialogue. Right. If you're going to do one, you got to match the attitude with what you're showing. It's like you're saying the script comes off as almost robotic and weird. It's like when Baz Luhrmann did Romeo and Juliet, you got the whole like modern setting. Yeah. And that was cute. It's cool to hear like, you know, what was that? 15th century dialogue? Yeah. Yeah, coming out of modern shit. That's cool, but when you do something with generations so close together, like the 1950s and the 1990s, when you have people who are alive in both decades, it's, it's going to come across as weird. It's going to lay flat, and it's going to be jarring. 
it's going to pull you right out of the movie to be hearing 1960s conventions and mores out of the setting of the 90s, which is all steamy and seamy. It doesn't work. You pick one. Yeah. And, you know, and one of the things was, and this was interesting listening to the commentary, was this was one of the few scenes where they intentionally blocked it and shot it differently than the original, mm -hmm. but they kept all the words exactly the same. And That's, I think what you're saying is very true. Yeah, the way that they were talking about what was keeping them apart. I mean, yeah, I'm glad they updated like the 40,000 to 400,000. I mean, cause, you know, why not? But it's just, you can't have... You're showing one thing and saying, and it's like showing a porno talking about like being respectable and being married in a church or whatever. It's like, really? Like, it just doesn't, it's such a lie. Yeah, no, I agree with you very much on that. You know, and one of the other interesting things about the opening was you mentioned that they tried to increase the sexuality. There is actually no additional nudity for, on Marion's part. She's still wearing the bra and slip. Yeah. But he's walking around buck ass naked. Yeah. Oh, and Thank she kind of glances down and is all like, hell yeah. Yeah, put your shoes on. Yeah. I'm like, by shoes, you mean, I'm sorry, what? By shoes, I mean me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, you know, a lot of people would argue any excuse to see Viggo Mortensen naked. I don't have a problem with that. A yeah. It, me, but. <laughs> it's kind of funny, though, because I'm just like, oh, gosh, Lanzan. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that they said in the commentary they were trying to make a statement by having the man be the nude one and the woman still being partially clothed, but it just, it calls attention to itself, like Marion in general. It feels wrong. It feels off. Yeah. I think maybe if her underpants weren't, like, the color of... What is the she didn't have underpants. Orange. She was wearing a slip well, the whole time. The slip and the bra. No, no, she had a bra on. Her bra was orange. Yeah, it was the orange one in the opening that looks like that's the color you see in your retinas when the sun is burning them out eventually. <laughs> and I'm just like, wow, we couldn't have just gone with white like in the original to obvious. It was black, it was black in the original. It, it was white in the opening scene. The original was black when she decided to steal the money. Just like here, it starts orange and then it turns green. Symbolism. No, just a pumpkin. <laughs> and she got carved like a jack-o'-lantern. See, it's all symbolic. This was on purpose. It's art. <laughs> yeah. And then also she's wearing a pink dress on top oh of God. orange underwear. I don't, I don't even. Who does that? And then she's wearing an orange really dress over top of green. Designer. Yeah. All right, so why don't we go ahead and move on to the main topic that I know everyone's going to want to talk about. Why don't we go ahead and talk about Norman? Vince Vaughn was just an awful, awful, awful choice. And here's the thing. I think he gives a really good performance. He's just exactly the wrong person for it. Oh, hell yeah. He looks like a fucking molester. Yes. He looks like somebody who's going to be in a van across the street with the sign that says free candy or like, you know, hey, I've got a hurt puppy in the back. Why don't you lean in here and you can see him? And yeah, there's no innocence to him at all. None. Yeah, it's like when you meet Anthony Perkins and he looks like the sweet boy, whereas when you meet Vince Vaughn, the first words out of my like mouth would have been, do you have like your mother's well-preserved corpse in your basement? <laughs> Evie, I want to see you like meet somebody and say that. <laughs> I'll have a video camera standing by. I expect to hear that when you ever meet me for the first time. <laughs> she met me and I'm like the creepiest person you could possibly You are not the creepiest person. Fine. <laughs> but no, with Vince Fawn, it's just, there's none of the charm. There's none of the innocence. There's the weirdness. There's the awkwardness. There's no but... boyishness to him. Right. Mm -hmm. That's the whole point. Norman Bates is a little boy who right. never got out from under his mother's thumb. He acts like a man in this one and he shouldn't. Right, and you know, the big thing about Norman Bates is you have to be able to root for him for at least a part of the story. I don't want to say root for him, but I think you should feel... Well, you're supposed to sympathize think, with no, him. No, I think you should feel for him. I don't think you should sympathize with him. I don't think you should empathize with him. But, but you I should think pity you should, him. 
thank you. You should feel for him. Yes. Like, this is a horrible thing that has happened to you, and, you know, your brain just got so fucked up. Right, and, you know, and then one of the biggest mistakes they made was the masturbation. Oh, my God. God. No, it's so wrong, yeah. This is the most sexually repressed... I know. ...destroyed character in, like, the fucking history of horror. And you just have him bust a nut, yeah. Oh, my God. That was so terrible. Well, no, it was still art. It was representation of Gus Van Sant doing what he was doing with this movie. Mm. And you got that one side-on shot as he's just huffing it and shaking. Oh, yeah. Jesus. And you oh. can hear it in the... Oh. Yeah. I want to know how they made that sound effect. Oh, stop it. No, gross, dude. I hear that all the time from my D&D group when I talk about me and Scarlet. <laughs> <laughs> That was so unnecessary. It was so bad. Not only were you already not connecting with the character, but what is the one thing you can do to make sure that nobody will care about him whatsoever? Let's skeeve everybody. Right. Let's really skeeve everybody. Yeah. It's that moment that just said, you know what? You're not going to like Norman. You're not going to feel pity for him or anything. Because the choosing to masturbate, like I said, this choice, not just the director's choice, but just, you know, Norman's in this movie, his choice to just sort of wank it while watching Marion get undressed. It shows some sort of deliberate grown-upness. You know, this is a man's choice to do this. Yeah. You know? Yeah, whereas in the original... It takes away a lot of the whole, like, repress... He's not a boy anymore. Yeah. Yeah, whereas in the original, it's like Norman's almost, I think, would be incapable of masturbating because he is just this little kid. Exactly. Yeah, Mother would never let him go that far. And if you read the book, there's this whole dissertation on how, like, Mother always said that, you know... Looking at yourself like that is dirty, and she'd whip him when he he couldn't. Oh yeah, even, when he when he was looking at himself naked in the mirror. Yeah, he couldn't even look at himself in the mirror. He couldn't even do that. That was beaten into him that everything involving your penis is filthy and awful. Mm-hmm. And that's why he snapped so hard when his mother had a boyfriend, and then so he killed her. Well, both of them. Right. So yeah, I think we can all agree that the masturbation was a complete mistake. Big time. Vince Vaughn was a mistake. I can kind of see why they wanted him because he does kind of have that same lankiness to him, but he just doesn't have the innocence. He looks creepy. Yeah. Now, if I can just hear your guys' thoughts, as I was watching the remake, all I could think was, why didn't they have Vince Vaughn and William H. Macy swap roles? Uh, William H. Macy just looked like a hard-boiled 1950s, you know. But he can play innocent. He can play the boyish innocent because he has those big, huge puppy dog eyes. Yeah, but he just... Just take I'm a moment sorry. and think he about just it. Looked, he just looked like the hard-boiled detective. I, I can't... Well, Macy is one of those actors who can look like anything. Eh. I don't know who I would have cast as Norman, to be honest with you. I can't think of anybody from 1998 who could have pulled it off. I mean, but then also just think about Vince Vaughn as Arbogast and Macy as as Norman. I am, and I really, really... You just can't see it? I think he did a great job as Arbogast. Oh, I don't don't deny that. No, I think he was very suited to the role. I think he really threw himself into the role, and I don't think he could have done that with Norman. I really just don't. I really? Think, I, I really think that it would have been a mistake because I don't think anybody could have done Arbogast better, to be honest. I think, I think that was a fantastic choice for Arbogast. Evie, what do you think? You know what? I actually, if they had done that with William H. Macy, it would have been a really interesting choice, which is something that they really, like with Vince Vaughn, it's sort of just like watching Lurch lumber around. <laughs> I'm like, dude, you're not Norman. You're not innocent. You're not anything. He probably could have done a decent job as Arbogast, where, like, William H. Macy, I'm like, that would have been interesting. Well, Macy nails any role he's in, so... Oh, definitely. And the thing is, it would have been interesting, because it would have kind of been going back to the novel, to where in Norman... Where he's older and shorter, yeah. Yeah, and that would have been cool to see. That definitely would have been going outside of what the original was. 
And it would have been a bolder choice to make where he kind of sort of played it safe, but his Norman doesn't really work. So, well, you, you know, so you know what Norman was in the book. He was a comic book nerd, fat, wore glasses, That's right. lived at home with his mother. He had comic books and sci-fi magazines. Yeah. He did. He was a fucking geek. Yeah, he was fat. He was bespectacled. He was balding. He uh-huh. looked like me in 10 years. <laughs> in 10 years, he looks like you now. Hey, oh. Yeah, I know. I love you. Don't Dana. be mean, Dana. Don't be mean. Hi. Yes, but I'm comfortable with my penis. Yeah, well, I'm not comfortable with your penis, so can you maybe get it out of here? Thanks. (laughs) I broke her again. (laughs) Well, we've already mentioned Sam and Lila, who I think we both agree they actually did improve upon those two. I have to give it that. I have to give it props. I think Julianne Moore was wonderful. I love, they really livened up Lila like crazy. I think she was fantastic. She was a lot more of a go-getter than Vera Miles was. And she's far more active, like even in the end of the movie, whereas Vera Miles, she's sort of just standing there screaming when she finds Mother, whereas... Well, that was a woman in the, you know, in the 1960s. Yeah, but the thing is, like, Julianne Moore still does that, but then at the... She runs in and boots him in the face. Exactly, yeah. and I was like, yes! Because yeah, you wanted was... to see her do that at the end, because I'm like, she... I think at that there point... There were no action, female action heroes in 1960. Yes. Honey West. Well, Modesty Blaze. Fuck you. <laughs> Not in a horror movie, damn it. Not in a horror movie. That's true. All right, just calling it. So yeah, I I did I did like that she kicked him in the face. That was pretty cool. A lot of people got pissed off at that scene. Like they made it all action movie. I'm like, at that point, they needed to do something to make this remotely justified. Yeah. Well, I've got to be honest, I didn't really like the climax in the original. I just thought that shot of Norman running in is just kind of silly to me. And then how you hear Mother's voice going, I'm Norma Bates. You know, it's just, it doesn't work for me. I thought that was perfectly fine. I, I you know, maybe... He... It just looks so silly. Well, that's how he... It's not It's not like a big scary reveal. It's, it's supposed like... to be scary. It's supposed to be something that you pity. Well, it's supposed to be scary at the moment because you think he's going to kill her. No, the scary moment's looking at Mother's fucking corpse. And, oh my God, can I just say the addition of the spot? Yeah. Yeah. Hated. Oh, it's like crawling in her nose. Oh, God. But in the remake, I felt more the threat. When when Norman suddenly shows up in that scene dressed as mother, you get the reveal and you get the threat. Yeah, it is a lot more of a uh, of a struggle. And then the fight with him and Sam feels more real. Yeah. Except Vince Vaughn in a wig. No. Just no. Just well, it doesn't I matter think... if he looks good or not because he's supposed to be a crazy guy dressed up as his mom. Yeah, it's not It's not yeah. supposed to look good. It's not supposed to even look realistic. It's just supposed right. to be all he needs to convince. It's what he needs to convince himself. You know what? This is me personally. When I saw Psycho for the first time, when Anthony Perkins comes in dressed as mother, I didn't realize it was him at first. <laughs> I was like, what? What's going on? Until they pull the wig off. Yeah, it's when the wig comes off that I realized, oh, Whereas with the remake, you just have Vince Vaughn in a bad wig, and I'm just... And the thing is, the reveal is just so much more like, there he is. Whereas in the original, he sort of just comes out from the shadows, and here he's just sort of there. I don't know. I just always like the staging of it better in the in the remake. It's just, to me personally, because it feels forced in the original, especially the bit when Sam grabs him and the wig comes off and the dress opens. It feels staged. Yeah. Okay, that... But it I also feels you. a lot more like he was ripping apart Norman. I mean, especially like the posing... It's like the wig comes off and the dress opens and it's like Norman is emerging. You know what I mean? It felt more like a tearing. It felt more like like Sam was forcing it off of Norman. But if you go with how it actually turns out, in a sense, you're pulling off the illusion of Mother, so Norman's only recourse is to fully become her. Inside. Mm-hmm. So I don't, but I don't know, it still doesn't entirely pull off for me. 
maybe neither one of them got it entirely right. Yeah, the remake, I have problems with the climax of where the hell did he get this big, huge terrarium full of birds? <laughs> he bought them. How did he afford Did he ship them in? Did he go out and hunt them? Did he? I like the terrarium because I'm like, oh, that's where he got all the birds. Whereas in the original, it's like, where the hell did he get all those birds to like stuff? But they were just kind of random birds that he probably got from neighbors yeah, who hunted stuff. Yep. In this one, he has this entire like little zoo in his basement full of live birds. Terrarium is not the word you're looking for. It's aviary. Aviary. Thank you. You're welcome. And, but I mean, technically up in his room, you do see that he has this, this hunting rifle and this hunting bow and arrow, which was an odd thing, but it kind of makes more sense. But how does he still have this entire chamber full of these living birds? <laughs> Where did he get them? Yeah, yeah I don't even. In the fruit cellar. I don't know. You know what? I kind of, I totally let that go. I was just like, yeah, no, that's where he keeps his birds because he's a crazy guy who just gets big lipped alligator moment. And if you, if you notice, they actually did cut one entire sequence from the original film, and that's when they meet up with the sheriff at the church, and he says, "Yeah, I took the boys out. We we went over that hotel. We went over the house. We didn't find anything." Well, of course, they had to cut that out because nobody's going to miss that fucking room full of birds in the basement where mother's hiding. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, because they're like, yeah, no, we went over that place with a fine tooth comb. Totally didn't go in the basement though we ain't found shit <laughs> and speaking of norman's room why does he have this giant plaster obelisk right in the middle of his bedroom phallus did you notice that phallus i know but who has a gigantic plaster obelisk right in the center of their bedroom if you're living in just as kind of off the road in, in the south who directed 2001 space odyssey <laughs> come on Noel, you're the movie buff you should know. Well, i know it was stanley kubrick but Thank what did you. that have Jesus to do with this fucking christ oh i'm gonna get like angry letters for that but what does that have to do with this it's not like he's finding it on the moon we're finding it in the middle of a guy's bedroom I don't it know, maybe the sky no just let it go a wizard did it and and also i love how when she finds the porn in the original movie There's she no, has this oh. like shot in oh. the original movie she has an unlabeled book that she opens and she has this shocked reaction to well it's you no know, don't tell yeah but in the re- in the original book it was a book full of porn that she found and in this one, when she picks up the porn magazine, was looking through it, she just has this, yeah, well, he's just a fucking guy. Like, okay, boy. Yeah, she should have picked up, like, some hentai or something. <laughs> yes. That. It should have been, like, all incest fans. She had a shelf of the guinea pig films. <laughs> oh, God. Like, Japanese mother-son hentai stuff. That yes. Oh, dude. Oh. That would have made sense, actually. The weird shit. In this one, when, when Norman says a boy's best friend is his mother, you just know he's totally doing the corpse. It's just sad. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, he had a psychosexual fascination with his mother, if you think about it in the book. Uh-huh. That's really fucked up. And then if you've seen Psycho 4, it really was kind of really, really... Which I haven't yet, but I know that all that, all that backstory was in the book, where the mother hooked up with the other guy. Oh, it's yeah. really explicit. And uh, Oh, in Psycho 2, the oh. novel, which had nothing to do with Psycho 2, the, uh, the film, there is a scene where he's, he rapes a nun. The mother's superior position, and it's like the first time he's had like an orgasm from sex. He's fucking a dead, you know. He's he just keeps thinking mother, mother, and that's what makes him come. And that's really fucked. Up. Oh boy. And that's the, well, when you think about it, that's why the mother aspect of his persona was killing all these other women that he was attracted to. Yeah. It even explains it. Well, since you know he was pathologically jealous of her, she was pathologically jealous of him, and so mother would come out and kill. She would literally come. Norman was fucked the fuck up, man, and that is her fault. I blame the parents. Yes. Wasn't his dad dead or something? Yeah. Uh, his dad died, then she freaked out, and then she met another guy, and then he freaked out. So. Yeah, that's just sad. That's just sad, man. He just got fucked up from the way he was raised. Well, in the original book, I thought it was that the dad actually ran off on her with another woman. Entirely. And that was kind of the reason why she started to do this whole men are dirty, filthy animals thing. 
Yeah, that was definitely in the book. And she ingrained that into him, but then when she falls in love with another guy, she contradicts everything that she taught Norman. Yeah, so mother becomes a lie. The mother figure isn't the thing that he can depend on anymore, so he has to make it stop. He has to deny it. So in order to do that, he does the ultimate denial, which is killing her. Yeah. And then he's like, shouldn't have done that, uh, retcon. Yeah. Lawyered. <laughs> And then if I, if I can get back to Sam and Lila for a moment, what I like about them is how they furthered the divide in that she has prepared herself for the worst. She kind of is like the, this is something terrible that's going on here. We got to figure out what it is. Whereas he's kind of in denial. He's kind of putting on his golly shucks, you know, Southern swagger charm. And is like, well, I mean, come on, you never know. You know, she might be okay. She might have actually just run off. You never know. Was he doing that for himself or for her benefit? I think he was trying to convince himself. You could see that it was kind of poking through him. But. Well, with Sam's old-fashioned attitude, he might have been, you know, protecting the woman. Which, again, doesn't ring true in 1998 as much as 1960. And then, of course, Lila in the remake is someone who doesn't need to be protected yeah. and doesn't want I, to I be. I liked Lila so much more in the remake. She's all like, fuck this noise. I'm going to do this. I love this entire recurring bit where he keeps putting his arm yes. on her shoulder and she glares it off. Like, every time where it's like he's trying to be comforting and then she's just like, give your arm around me. The hell? Well, that plays out in the sequel, both in the book and the, and the movie, because uh, in the sequel, Lila and, and Sam get married. Yeah. Should I say spoiler warning? I think this whole thing is a big spoiler. What I love about the remake is it's pretty honest that these two are never going to hook up at all. They aren't even comfortable around one another, but they're just kind of having to yeah, work. Yeah, they haven't even met. Yeah, they're, they're just, they're having to work together because this one person they both care about has gone missing. Yeah. It's so hilarious how, uh, you know, there's a whole bit where she just rejects any physical contact with him, but then when they both have to pretend to be a married couple... He, he's, like, got his arm on her, and she's winking oh, yeah, at Norman. Oh, yeah, delightfully awkward. Oh, that was so I love that wink that she does at Norman. Yes. And the thing is, he winks back. I'm like, you have no idea what's going on, do you? Yeah. Like, oh, just you just, like, so asked clueless. to get, you just asked to get stabbed, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> and then what I love about Sam is he's kind of a bit of a knucklehead in the remake, but in a very lovable and relatable way. And, and thus the scene where he's trying to weasel out information from Norman was kind of really tense in the original. But in this one, it's actually kind of funny. I actually thought it was a good tension breaker to break the tension of her searching the house because, you know, for a first time or you still don't know if where mother is and what she's going to do. So it's just a kind of nice release of tension every time you cut back to him. Like, so what would you do with $40,000, huh? Or $400,000? <laughs> I'd stuff me so many birds. Oh, oh, I just, holy shit. No, 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 no. That's what Norman, that's what Norman does. He stuffs birds and then he kind of stuffs birds because he can't yeah. stuff birds. I just, if you think of the British slang. He can't stuff a cat, so he stuffs a bird. No, no, a bird is, is British slang for for a girl. Well, no, but if you remember, there's the entire scene where he says he can't stuff beasts, like a cat or a pussy. Oh, oh. see, we're getting, we're getting all kinds of layers here, just sitting around talking about this. Mm -hmm. see, so the script, I guess the script wasn't that bad, so. I actually thought the script was really good. It was just it very, very much a script of its time. Exactly. and It, it was it, exactly how people talked and sounded back then, but they don't sound that way anymore, so it doesn't hold up. And that's why I think the remake was absolutely pointless, because it didn't update anything. It didn't update the attitudes. They just shot it in color and gave it different actors, and it's like, really? When you make a movie, you really should have something to say. And I don't think, I think Gus Van Sant was just being an echo. I think he was intrigued by the experiment, but he didn't, wasn't interested in, in exploring anything deeper. So many interviews he did where he said, I just did this for the hell of it, just because. Right. Just because I could. Evie, you said that there was like a, a whole thing where he was passionate about this. No, he wasn't. If you read like every single interview he does. He was about, passionate about the experiment, but not about the story. Not yeah. about the story at all. He was just like, let's just do this for a lark and fail. 
What's interesting in listening to the audio commentary was when they eventually got around to saying anything, because it was mostly just Anne Heche and Vince Vaughn patting each other on the back, Gus Van Sant says, and this was recorded after the film had come out, so they had already, they were responding to the critical reception. He says, you know, I almost think maybe we should have gone back and tried to incorporate more of the original Ed Gein story that kind of influenced it and try to get more into the real story behind what influenced Psycho to begin with. Well, yeah, well, they did that already in Psycho 4. Right, and technically, you know, if you want to go that route, then you got Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah, that's been done. That's been done. It's just so pointless. He didn't have anything new to bring to the table at all. There was... Let me read, uh, I found Roger Ebert's original review of this. I'm going to read his last paragraph. Roger Ebert's review is copyright the Chicago Tribune. All rights reserved. <laughs> it's from, uh, this is December 6, 1998. I viewed Hitchcock's Psycho a week ago. Attending this new version, I felt oddly as if I were watching a provincial stock company doing the best it could without the Broadway cast. I was reminded of the child prodigy who was summoned to perform for a famous pianist. The child climbed onto the piano stool and played something by Chopin with great speed and accuracy. The great musician then patted the child on the head and said, You can play the notes. Someday you may be able to play the music. Nice. That is a a very eloquent burn. (laughs) And, you know, and that's the thing is, even just from a technical standpoint, Von Sant has such a different style that he's trying to mimic this precision, this, this absolute meticulous precision of Hitchcock. You know what he is? You know what he is? What? In comic book terminology, he's a tracer. (laughs) <laughs> have you seen because if you've seen if you've seen chasing amy yes he's a tracer. but what's interesting is that he, he is a very good filmmaker gus von Sant, but he has this kind of rougher more indie style where it's more improvisational a little kind of looser a lot of people and, have said that he already made a great hitchcockian thriller to die for yeah yeah but and he, and he let it stand on its own feet but the problem is that when you get to like the moment i mean there are a lot of moments in this movie that still work in terms of just where it's kind of the looser calmer parts where people are sitting around and talking but when you get to the moments where it has to be precise like the shower sequence it just it does not work as it feels like someone trying to imitate something that they don't fully understand and then he goes in and throws in these weird subliminal shots you know the words oh but god you don't those know what did they not mean. work for me oh at all. god no what were you going to say, Dana? I was going to say he knows the words, but he doesn't know what they mean. Right. He's got the words, but not the tune. It's like little kids swearing. They don't know what that shit means. They don't know what fuck means. They don't know what screw you means, but they'll say it because it sounds hip. Right. And here's the thing. He's a very intelligent filmmaker. It's just I don't understand why he quite wanted to go and do this. And like even from a technical point, like the death of Arbogast. Why does she slash an X into his face before stabbing him? Yeah, I was Where just did like, that come from? I, I did think it was funny that they kept the hilarious... The, the, the slow-mo the fall. The fall, the fall. Yeah. yeah, that was hysterical. Which I thought worked really well in the original, but here it just was like, no. Yeah, it's so random. It, it, I just thought it was cute that they kept the same stupid film technique. Yeah. Actually, she, he doesn't carve an X. She slashes. She does carve an X over his eye, and then she actually slashes across his nose, too. Right, and that's weird because in the original, that line of blood was just spatter from when he got stabbed in the chest. It wasn't she cut his face. Yeah. That was just a splash of blood. So why did they see that and say, okay, we have to cut his face, cut his face again, cut his face again, and then stab him? And it's like, during none of this, he's actually able to fight back. He's just standing there while she's cutting his face. Yeah. And then you get more subliminal flashes. Those subliminal flashes, I'm like, I see what you're trying to do. Stop it. Like, it was just the most annoying thing. I was like, symbolism, I don't care. No, drop it, drop it, no, (laughs) you know? Yes, you know, it's just, don't. I I like what he did sound-wise with, like, these kind of, these very distant voices that you would kind of hear whenever it's just Norman by himself, to the point where I kind of had to turn it up and was like, when he leaves the peephole and he goes up to sit in the kitchen, you can just start to hear this little murmuring on the soundtrack. 
that was a really nice touch because, you know, most people are going to miss that until the second time around when they know what's going on. And then also when you have the, uh, why she wouldn't even swat a fly scene where you have all these other voices coming in, the jumble that's going on in his brain. It's not really a jumble. It's just mother just, you know, ruminating on her circumstances. But it's these other voices trying to be heard beneath the dominance that is mother. And you can hear his voice in there too still. I didn't notice that. Mm-hmm. You can hear Vince Vaughn's voice repeating the lines too. Huh. I'm going to have to go you could almost say that it would like be I said, I haven't, I haven't and all his it. victims are in there with mother. Mm, I don't know if all the victims are in there. I think it's mainly just... It might, be, it might be going back between Norman and mother. Yeah. It might be like she's forced down the child and the child is just going along with mother. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It was interesting. And I also love the extended ending credits that they did where you pull out the vehicle from the mud over the credits. And the last shot is where we see kind of the entire thing that's responsible for the downfall of the motel is... The highway, the brand new highway, full of traffic in the background. I forgot about that. I forgot about that. In the front of it is the old highway where you see like a total of two cars go by. See, it's all just circumstances that you can't help that leads to just trouble. Right, and you see when they really get into the material and they deviate from it and they try to do something new, like with Sam and and with Lila and with this bit here with the cars and with the voices. Except for the masturbation. Right. Look, Norman's basically a eunuch, okay? Right. He he, he could... There's no way. Right. The only shot I really liked that they kind of added was the over-the-head shot where Marion slumps out of the bathtub. Because that was a shot that was intended for the original, but Hitch just knew he would never be able to get it past Yeah, the I like how they showed, like, the stab wounds on it, too. Yeah. Right, and that was actually something they added in post in CGI. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, it did, it did look like that a little bit. All right, so do we have any final thoughts when it comes to the remake? Epic fail. Flat out just shouldn't have been? Flat out fail. All right, Evie? Thank you for Vigo Mortensen's butt. It was lovely. I think, yeah, the stuff that they came up with, like the stuff that they added themselves, the little extras, those were good. But when they're following the script really tightly, I'm like, it's sort of almost like listening to ambient noise because there's no point to it. Yeah. Here's the thing with the remake. If you're really going to do it, you have to, like, because I bitched in Nightmare on Elm Street where they deviated too much from the original concept of Freddy. Yeah. Here it's like the exact same thing with Norman. You gotta capture the essence, and sometimes you can't do that without the original actor, the original director. You get, uh, like you should just let stand on its fucking own. That's a disagreement we'll have to have on another day. That's the disagreement we'll always be having, Noel. Yeah. Ask me again when you guys do one missed call. <laughs> yeah. We want you to be our one-year anniversary for One Missed Call. Deal. Deal. Because that's the one that made me swear off remakes. Yes. And, you know, this is something I have to ask is, was the Psycho remake the catalyst for the modern kind of distaste with remakes in general? God, I hope so. <laughs> because if, if you think about it, you know, before 1998, you know, remakes were just kind of a normal thing that people accepted. But then you had Psycho and Godzilla came out in oh, the same year. And Godzilla. it's like suddenly no, That wasn't really a remake, though. That was another Godzilla. Godzilla story told with a giant. Lizard. That's going to be our third episode, so we're going to we're going to get into that. Counts. I don't think it counts as a remake. I think it's just another Godzilla story. We're still doing Godzilla. it anyway, so teaser. That's our third episode. <laughs> yeah, we're still doing it. We don't care if it's not a remake. Yeah, well, it, it's it, they credit the original gonna, story. So, do you want to tease what you're going to do next? Our very next episode, we're going to do the Parent Trap. So the exact opposite of Psychos. <laughs> Well, not so much. It could have been really interesting if they no, put Norman in there. Yeah, if it were like this incestuous lesbian twin affair as they're trying to kill everyone. And... I think I read a hentai like that once. I think I saw a lot of porn like I that I think you once. probably starred in a hentai. <laughs> no, fuck you, buddy. 
Yeah. I will say about the remake, the one thing that I did like that they actually left in from the original is when Norman first, when Mother's killed Marion, and Norman's supposed to be finding Mother. Blood, 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 blood. And I'm like, it's Norman and Mother at the same time. Yes. Like, the voice does not sound like Norman, and it doesn't sound like Mother. It's a mix of them. It's transitioning. And they had that in the remake, and I really like that, because I'm just like, oh, okay, they kept that in. That was good. I'll give it that. You know, personally, I can understand why they remade this film, but my problem with this film is that in trying to so closely mimic the original, if they were going to do that, then they should have gone just balls out and just completely mimic the original, set it in the 50s, don't change anything. But I don't think that would have worked either. I think the problem is they tried to have their cake and eat it too by trying to change things, by trying to keep it the same. And I think, unfortunately, it doesn't allow itself to exist as its own film, as its own version of the story. It's always going to be in the shadow of, we're just trying to imitate what this guy did. I think we all agree that this was a remake that failed. Epic fail. I don't think it was entirely epic because I still think it's a watchable movie, Mm -hmm. but they went into it wrong conceptually. They made some bad choices when it came to what do we change, what do we not. And the wardrobe. The wardrobe. (laughs) Just like the characters in the movie, they made some really poor decisions and they couldn't take it back and they got slaughtered. Very well put. And I think that'll wrap us up for that. So thank you, Dana, for stopping by for our very, very first episode. It means a lot to us. It's the only way you'll get traffic. I mean, I I loved being here, because you're my friends. (laughs) You're lovely and wonderful, and I do worship at thy feet. Yeah, where's my money? It's in the mail. Oh, crap. We were supposed to pay you? You'll pay me exactly what Kevin pays me per episode of Made a Fail. Sexual favors? Ponies? Very married. Very, very, very married. (laughs) Thank God. (laughs) All right. Anyways, thank you all for joining us. Thank you all for listening. And we'll be back in a few weeks with our second episode, The Parent Trap. And, and don't forget to uh, visit madeafail.net. And everybody visit madeafail.net. I was going to put it in the show notes. Yeah, whatever. I already put it in the show notes of the last episode. <laughs> it's permanently in the column right next to our... Yeah, it's yeah. it's sort of like if you're not visiting Madeafail, you're up. a bad person. <laughs> Grow up. Go free. You're in college now. Get the hell out of my house. <laughs> we're even officially a made of fail production, according to Kevin. I, I know, so. but you were all like, we're your child. And I'm like, yeah, well, get your own apartment. I'm I'm not on the next few episodes, so there. Yeah. Can we live in your basement? <sighs> Are you going to get a job? Yes. Maybe. I already have one. Okay. No fucking. No fucking. Can I borrow the car? No. Can I build a beer tower? I'm going. <laughs> Can I make a fortress out of the couch cushions? Will you take us to Mount Splashmore? No. <laughs> we'll see. All As right. Noel's put it, we'll see. Thank you guys for having me. I'm done. Good night. Nope. All right. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this episode, please check us out at www.ihateloveremakes.com. We've left the comments sections open, so please let us know what you think about the films we've discussed. Speaking of which, I Hate Slash Love Remakes is in no way affiliated with the copyright holders of the films discussed. All rights are reserved and no infringement is intended. I Hate Slash Love Remakes is a made-of-fail production. class act. Evie, if you ever heard the stuff that we've edited out of Made a Fail, we could do like four hours of our fuck-ups. See, now I've just got, like, in my brain, it's like the smuttiest thing ever. Do it. 
No, like that's what I see as being edited out of Made to Fail. What is no? <laughs> Scarlet tried, God bless her, but Kevin kept cock blocking me. <laughs>